Hi, this is Ananda, president of the Hare Krishna community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. Hare Krishna. Um, thank you very much for um, allowing me to come back. Uh, um, Ananda has asked me if I would... Uh, well, what we want to do is we want to generate a discussion, really. So I'm going to talk about some things uh, to be thought-provoking. Um, so, uh, yeah, we want to have a discussion, and, and I just want to say some things that might be thought-provoking. And I want to use the six Gita values. You may have heard them here before, um, and we've started to use them. Um, Brajbihari Prabhu, my good friend, has, was one of the people who helped develop them, and Shesha, and Kalakanta, and Brahmatirtha. Uh, so a little group of us were thinking about the issue of relevance. What's the relevance of our tradition? And uh, how can our tradition help develop um, social policy, environmental policy, political theory, economic theory? How do, we, how do we involve ourselves in these fields so that we can help people think things through more holistically and in a more balanced way? Because our approach, we would claim, is holistic and balanced. Um, and also, how can we um, include the teachings of the Gita in modern-day life in these ways. Um, now, if we look at the Gita as an ancient text, well, it's just an old story, so it's just mythological fa-fa, and who's really interested? But the fact is, we practice it on a daily basis, and so many hundreds and thousands and millions of people practice it on a daily basis. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi read it every day, and Mahatma Gandhi is like the secular saint. So Barack Obama had a picture of Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela in his Oval Office, both of them Gandhians, which meant he had to be a Gandhian, whether he liked it or not. Einstein was a Gandhian, John Lennon was a Gandhian. So many people were inspired by him, and he was inspired by the Gita. So the Gita has, is relevant. Aung San Suu Kyi is presently a Gandhian. You know, there's so many people who have taken these principles. Now they say Gandhian, because he developed a bit of a political theory out of it. But what were the principles behind that theory? And they came from the Gita. So this is a very relevant text for us to study and use in our lives, but not just our personal lives. We also have a responsibility to bring it into the world that we live in. If it's influencing us in such a positive way, how can it influence other things in the world in which we live? So we, the first of our Gita values is Samadarshanaha. Samadarshanaha means uh, equal vision. Um, darshan, interestingly, the word philosophy comes from the Greek philokalia, and it means the love of knowledge. And we always translate the Sanskrit word for philosophy as darshan, but actually darshan doesn't mean the love of knowledge. It means to see. And every individual in this room sees differently, physically, but also emotionally, and intellectually, and spiritually. So a, a two-year-old child has a darshan, has a, vision, oops, has a vision of the world, and it might be predictable and immature and all that, but that's how a two-year-old person sees the world. And it'll be from a white two-year-old person child's point of view, a black two-year-old person. The, the conditioning has already started, the things that shape our vision. And we can learn how to shape our vision. Our consciousness shapes our vision. So darshan is a very important term to understand because it gives individuality to everyone. You can't club people together and say, now we're the Hare Krishnas, we have one darshan. Because every individual within that group has an individual darshan. We share a broad perspective, but individually we're on our own journey. That's the, the pluralism of Indian thought, very much embedded in the Gita, in this term, Samadarshanaha. But Samadarshanaha is much broader in the sense of its spiritual import. It's saying that every one of us is eternal by nature. We have no beginning and no end. That's a very powerful statement to make. 
Our nature, ultimately, is spiritual. We have a physical aspect, but this is temporary. We're, have, we're going to have to give up this body at some stage, and then that's not part of us. It's just a passing phase. It's like childhood is a passing phase. When you're a child, it's everything. You know, a child's problems. Think of a child's problems. How to get sugar. That was, that was my problem. Sugar, butter and milk. That's all I was interested in. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't have them, life, life is a disaster. <laughs> you know, that's there. But now we have different problems. And those problems, a, a child... You see, I, I don't know if you've seen a child throw a tantrum. You know, it's, it's uh, quite, a, quite a, uh, an event. <laughs> And the child starts to bang their head and bang their arms and it becomes like self-destructive. They're willing to destruct themselves to get what they want. You know, and then when we're older, we're also willing to destruct ourselves to get what we want. But we know how to do it better. I, I actually, as a child, I tried to commit suicide. I was so angry with my father one time, I said, I'll choke myself. <laughs> and my father said, no you won't. I said, I will, I will, I'll choke myself. And then he said, no, you won't. So I tried to choke myself, because you can't choke yourself. <laughs> so, so he just laughed at me. I was so annoyed that he laughed at me. <laughs> Didn't even take it seriously. But we can get so caught up in our desires, in our vision of the world, that's actually very small. But we take it so seriously. But our vision of the world, the spiritual vision, is so broad, so immensely broad, if we are eternal beings, and we're just passing through here, so then how do you deal with this body? The body isn't everything, but we have to maintain it. But we don't have to take it that seriously. We don't have to do everything for the body, all kinds of creams and, you know, make it look beautiful, and if it's not beautiful, go get surgery, you know. Ugh. Spend thousands of pounds just trying to make it that this is everything, this is who I am. It's, no, it's not, it's only a part of who I am. So Samadarshana means to understand this point. What is the most substantial part of who we are? The part that lasts longest. And that's the eternal part. The part that I'm Shonakarishi and I'm in my 50s. But I was Shonakarishi and I was seven years old. That body is gone. Never to be seen again. But I am the same. I remember. So who is this I? that is so separate from the body and it's connecting with ourselves introducing us to ourselves this concept and if that's the case then every living being every being that has life this idea of Atma means life force so a dog, a giraffe, a, a tree cows black people, white people Hindus and Jews Every living being has this energy, same energy. So Samadarshana in that context means equal vision, how we see everyone having the same potency. There's no sectarianism in terms of religion, in terms of politics, in terms of gender. You can't say, you're a man, I'm a woman. These aren't the significant differences. None of these things are, are ultimately significant. They're significant while we're here in this world. We have to work out our relationships. But we can't discriminate people based on that. If I have another body in my next life, and I'm a woman, and I've treated women badly in my previous life, how ridiculous is that? To take these things so seriously. If I'm a man or a woman, I do the best I can with that circumstance to advance myself to advance the world in which I live, to make a positive contribution with this equal vision. But this equal vision is also not speciesist, because it means that humans aren't special. We're just different. That an animal is equally important spiritually. That's a person passing through that body. I'm driving in a Rolls Royce, they're driving in a Prius. It's just a different vehicle. If we discriminate based on the vehicle, that's just sad. Because when you stop the vehicle and the drivers get out, they're the same. So we don't discriminate. We see an animal, that's a person. Speciesism is like racism. 
That's what this vision of the Gita says. This is a very broad vision. Everything that has life is special because it has that spiritual spark. We can't create life. No science has ever created life. No science has ever stopped death. We have no control over this. You go into any hospital and you ask the doctor to cut out life, cut it out, the piece, and show it to me in a jar. We have no idea what it is. There's energy pumping the heart. It's not plugged in anywhere. We have no explanation for it at all. The science of life is a mystery, absolute mystery. And the Gita is saying, well, look at it from this perspective. You are eternal by nature. That totally empowers us, totally gives us the big picture. And then we see everyone in their context. The ramifications for us in terms of political theory and social policy and economic theory are massive. Now we're talking relevance of this idea. Because since the Enlightenment, since the end of the 1700s, our legal system has been based on the concept of human dignity. And we'll all, when you say human dignity, we all mentally salute. And based on this idea of human dignity, then we have the idea of human rights. The Declaration of Human Rights by the UN, we all salute. The equality agenda is based on this thinking, we all salute. This is equality for human beings, not for animals. This is dignity for human beings, not for other living beings, not for forests, not for cows, not for rhinoceros. So we can encroach on their territory and wipe out whole species without thinking about it. Because we're humans. And the Gita thinking would question this and said, no, the legal system should be based on the concept of the dignity of life, not human dignity, but the dignity of life, the dignity of all living beings. This is a much broader concept. Now think how this impacts environmental policy. That means you can't have an environmental policy that ignores animals or forests, etc. These have to be protected in law. How does it affect political theory? There's no idea of racism, forget that. Gender equality, that's, that's a given. The things that we're fighting for in the modern context, they're assured in this philosophical perspective. This is a, but, but more than that, it's challenging to go further. This is a very positive challenge, and this is a challenge that needs to be made in the political sphere, here in DC. This is the political sphere. Who's writing papers on this? Papers that are written in such a way that politicians and lobbyists will read them, making it relevant to the world in which we live. This can be done. This is not difficult. So we can make these principles absolutely relevant, challenging even. And it's a positive challenge. I guarantee you in the next 10 years, the idea of speciesism, this will not be the first time you've heard this word. This is going to become a policy issue. The question is, is the Hindu community, the Vaishnav community going to push it, or are we just going to leave it to someone else? This is your issue. This is the Gita issue. And that's just one of our values. And all our values have such relevance. They're all impactful like that. Let's look at another of the Gita values, uh, Amanitwa, which is humility. So this is the beautiful text by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that you've possibly all heard, Trinadapi Sanichina Tarurapi Sahishnana, Amanina Madanina Kirtaniya Sadahari, Amanina Amanitwa. That he says, um, give all respect to others and expect no respect for yourself. This is a spiritual principle. Samadarshana is a philosophical principle. That's a principle of perspective. That's an assumption of how the world works. This humility is a principle of the heart. This is how we live in the world. Now imagine meeting someone who offers all respect to you and expects none back. Anyone have any experience of such a meeting? <laughs> But it's, it's, isn't it difficult to offer everyone all respect? Someone comes to you and say, 
I'm from Harvard University. <laughs> waiting, waiting for respect. That's the last person you're going to respect. This text says, give it to them. Give all respect to everyone. If they want it, if they don't want it, if they've gone to Harvard University, that's a good thing. Give them respect. They deserve it. The worst thing is someone driving past in their Rolls Royce with their, their arm out the window, smiling at you. What's our response? You know, ah, you big Rolls Royce. <laughs> it's not, you know, oh, I'm so happy for you. They, they've got the karma that got them the car. They deserve respect. Actually, they deserve respect. The karma doesn't last very long, c'est la vie, but while they got it, give it to them. What's holding us back? That's the question, what's holding it back? Our heart isn't in the right place. We're envious, we're not loving, we're not being kind, we're not thinking correctly. And to expect no respect for ourselves, well, that's, a, that's an ask. <laughs> we expect all respect for ourselves, unfortunately. We expect people who we consider beneath us to respect us, and if they don't, we press on their heads. We respect our, our peers to respect us, and we're fighting always for the respect of the people above us. And that's the modern culture in which we live. That's the dynamic, that's what's expected. But I know personally, as an employer, if I see someone in the organization that is doing their job diligently and not, not looking for the rise that has not happened and may never happen, but is working for the moment, working, doing that job the best they can. That's the person I'm interested in. Not the person who's always coming into my office saying, look at the work I did. Isn't it brilliant? I'm good. You know, I should be promoted. Have you seen my CV? And you know, we, we sell ourselves. This is saying something else. There's a, there's a dignity in being yourself. You don't have to advertise it, just be yourself. And then that says everything. The thing is, we're afraid of what that says. We're not impressed ourselves. We put up all these images, you know, PR. PR, if you have an organization that has a PR department, there is no humility there. PR is presenting an image of what you want people to think about you. Our identity should speak for itself. And that's very difficult. I don't know if you've noticed you're on a train journey or something and you're sitting there and you meet a person new for the first time and all the mistakes you've made in life, you've learned from. So now you can present yourself as a new person to this person you'll meet only for two hours. And they'll say, what do you do? And very humbly you say, oh, yeah, I work in, uh, in Oxford in England. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and they say, oh, oh, Oxford, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we can present ourselves as humble and tolerant and wise and compassionate because, you know, what kind of a mistake are you going to make in two hours? Generally we, generally we find something, but we're, we're constantly looking for respect. And to develop that consciousness where we're, we're willing to tolerate others, to be compassionate towards others, to offer respect towards others, and expect nothing for ourselves, that's a very thoughtful position to be in, and it requires practice. We have to consciously accept this as a principle in our lives. And to accept it as a principle, we have to admit that we're not that. And then start the process. And it's a lifetime of practice. And we can do it, and so many people have done it. In so many religions, this principle, if a principle is real, it's universal. It's not one religion has humility and then the others don't. Every religious tradition is saying we should be humble. Any intelligent organization says you should be humble. It's become a, a buzzword in business in the corporate sphere. People are realizing that you have to treat people properly. Interpersonal relationships are essential. And the starting point for deep humility is the realization that we have been born into this world and it's highly organized before we ever got here. It's highly organized. It's well run. The universe is doing fine. And then what's our part to play?
our little self born into this ecosystem, what's the role, what's the contribution we can make to keep things running fine? That's the beginning of humility. And when you look at the complexity of everything, I, I personally find it very difficult not to accept that there is an intelligence behind it, that there is God. I would have to have, a, I don't have enough faith to have faith that there isn't a God behind this. It's too complex. There's something going on that's way beyond me. So to understand that there's a God and then personally I've come to Krishna. So that to serve Krishna, put myself in the right position, that's the humility that tops everything. If we start to develop our relationship with the Supreme, then our relationship with everyone is assured because everyone is related with the Supreme. Then our connection with the system is perfect. And then our, the possibility of us being humble with other people becomes real. That's the beginning of our humility, is that simple understanding that I don't know anything, I don't know what's going on, and this is vast. That's genuine appreciation. And then gratitude. I'm born into this world and I have parents who take care of me. Gratitude. I have a teacher that helped me understand. Gratitude. Where do these people come from? They're all given to us. I have food in my stomach. I have a, a roof over my head. You know, we are all being taken care of. We have been taken care of since birth. And that sense of gratitude, that, that grows our humility. That's, the, that's how we become real, real people and are able to make a real contribution to the world. And if our politicians, our leaders in our organizations could exemplify that humility, that would create the world in which we would like to live. And we may not have those leaders at the moment, but we can be a leader in our little world. And that's another principle, Acharya, one who teaches by example. Very powerful principle in the Gita. We have to learn how to accept principles in our lives, declare them to ourselves that this is my principle. I will start trying to practice this principle. I will try to become this person. We may never make it, but we will try honestly. And if you try honestly, that's enough. That's all you have to do. Just honestly, sincerely try, and everything else will come. And that in itself is a good example in society, in your family, that you try to be as best a person as you can. So you, you say, Samadarshana, got it. You know, uh, humility, got it. Acharya, I will try and exemplify it. Whatever principle I have, I will exemplify it. That's the, that principle, Acharya, is the essence of education, the essence of educational theory. If you apply that in every school in this country, and this is a challenge to educational theory, modern educational theory, that the teacher has to exemplify what they're teaching. They have to exemplify the values, the principles, the virtues that they say are good. They have to show what it means to be a good citizen and a good person. And if they're not doing that, then they're not good teachers. That's the principle. And if you take this principle to any school or college in this country, you're going to have problems because everyone's not going to measure up. So what is, it, what is the principle behind education? What's the principle behind government? Acharya. The leader of the country should exemplify the principles of citizenship that they want in their citizens. If they don't, why are they the leader? They should be removed. Otherwise, what kind of a society will we end up with? A society that we're not interested in. If we're struggling with these things, we need to see someone who's making it to be inspired. So if we want citizenship, citizens who are honest, who are peaceful, who are self-controlled, who are pure, tolerant, wise, religious, then vote for that person. I think unfortunately you mightn't get choice in the election. <laughs> but that's what we should be looking for. A leader that's worth voting for. And sometimes we don't find them. And your protest might be not to vote. 
and write a letter to the White House and say, the reason why I didn't vote was I didn't get a choice. Could we pre please have choice of someone who's worth voting for? Signed, Concerned Citizen. This, these principles are practical. That principle of Acharya is about democracy. It's demanding a leader that's worth voting for, a leader that's worth living with. So there are three principles. I don't know what kind of time we're looking at. I think we should, we should start discussion as three of the six principles, and they're all practical, and they're all something we can do with, and the other principles are the same. They're all practical and something we can do with in our modern context. And with these principles, we can revolutionize um, social discourse, political discourse, environmental discourse, judicial discourse, the, the thinking at Harvard Law School about human dignity. You stick in the idea of Samadarshana, they have to start engaging with it. And we can do that. We just have to get to Harvard Law School and sit there as a student and ask the question. And they have to engage with it. Become a qualified lawyer and write a paper in exactly the form that lawyers write so that they have to publish it. Get it peer-reviewed. Get it out there. This is how we become relevant. If our leaders are disappointing, get onto a talk show, write an article in a newspaper and introduce the idea of Acharya and measure them up and make it clear. It's a democracy, you're allowed to do that, but do it intelligently. This, all these things can be done. We can take these principles and use them in our personal lives and in a social context, in an environmental context, in a, an economic context. So presently in Oxford we're working, uh, the UN have asked us to work on um, uh, Hindu norms for in ethical investment. How would a Hindu invest their money ethically? Hindus have a lot of money, internationally. <laughs> Just a fact. But how are they investing their money? So you say, I'm a Hindu. What's my principle? Ahimsa. So you give your money to a fund manager who invests your money in beef stocks. Is that, what's the th how are you, how are you um, uh, screening your funding? This is practical. That's another of our principles, ahimsa. Not harming. Your, your fund manager is investing it in, in uh, arms, the arms industry, the defense industry. Is that what you want to do with your money? Or should you make a choice? And should you give them uh, some norms? That here are, the, here are the positive screens and here are the negative screens, according to my principles. So we're developing the principles for ethical investment. This is practical, this is relevant. This is working at a high level. And we can work at that level with these principles, but we have to start practicing them in our lives first so we see the relevance. So, I suppose that's what you do in Washington, you give a call to arms. <laughs> so with that, um, Ananda very much wanted discussion, so we have, we have a little while for discussion. So if anyone wants to discuss these, I threw these out in a little challenging way so that it might inspire um, discussion. So if anyone wants to challenge me back, please feel free. Hare Krishna. So Prabhuji, I have first one comment. So I have seen like uh, many friends of mine who, you know, now they, nowadays especially seeing in all over the world that religions, actually the religion, they say that actually religions has made more cruelty in the world nowadays. And now they have stopped believing the religions and they say just live your life happily, help others and do not believe in religions. Now the many friends of my thinking like this by saying that ISIS because they are so like different religion they are doing it right and uh, I have a question for you for this for on the same contrast as you said as you said in the lecture that all religions teaches us humility but how come this religions some of the religions I would say is means you know teaching in the different parts of the world the quality the rudeness not loveness to others. Why is this thing happening in this world? Because due to which, you know, many persons I have seen, uh, many friends of mine, sometimes we have a discussion. They have the same thing. Why should we believe in religions? 
this religion is not giving a right idea how to live. And how if this, and they say, if your uh, religion is not giving a right idea, then how humility will come, how great it will come. So this is how the things uh -huh. are happening. Yeah, so uh, it's a good question about uh, religion. Um, I always have the same problem with religion. I, um, it's just, if your priests aren't acharyas, they're not practicing and living by example, it's disappointing. So because you're disappointed, then you give up religion. But that doesn't make logical sense. Uh, you're disappointed in that person or that group of people. But down the street, there's another group of people and they're doing fine. So giving up on that basis is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, it's, it's not seeing what the issue is, what the value is. So you, you look into any religious system in the world and you see uh, a tremendous wealth of teaching, of, of principles, of value, of practices, um, of experiences. You listen to the stories of, of the saintly people, St. Francis of Assisi in Italy. Very inspiring. If, if, if I'm a Gaudiya Vaishnava, it's not an issue. He's inspiring if you're anyone. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, you know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, as I say, he was a Hindu. But he inspired so many Christians and, and Muslims and Jews and all kinds of people. They didn't even see that he was a Hindu. Just because the principle was clear and he was practicing it. Extraordinary. A politician who had principles. You know, my father, I don't know where he got this from, but he said Gandhi was a saint among politicians and a politician among saints. <laughs> so, as long as you know where he stands. And he was fine with that. So, you have to look beyond the individual person you're looking at. He's not getting it together. Then go and find someone who is getting it together. You know, so to, to give up, you go to um, buy some cream of some kind and you find that the leader of that organization doesn't use it himself. So, what, you never moisturize again? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It just doesn't make sense. There's no logical progression. So not only do people give up religion on that basis, they give up God on that basis. But they haven't investigated the subject. You can't give up God. I mean, you know, personally, I'm pretty take it or leave it about religion. Right? I, I love a bit of religion. Uh, you come into the temple and they're doing the pujas and all. You know, and they have to learn the mantras and have to take showers and everything like that. And it's great to see, but you know, it's not for me. <laughs> you know, and you went to the Catholic Church and there's seven priests up there celebrating Mass and everyone's standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down. And it's great. <laughs> but I can't do it every day. <laughs> it's not my thing. We have to find what the, the practice that enthuses us. And I was talking to Ananda this morning about going to the temple for the first time. I was in Ireland. And there was the arti going on. Now the arti is thousands of years old, the Pancharatra system of deity worship. This is ancient. And it's the same. It goes on the same. Same mantras, same processes, same mudras, everything. And you know the paka nature of the priests who have to prepare themselves by a, a physical bath of water, by a, a mental bath of purification, by a mantra bath, before they even go on the altar. You know, paka. So they go up there and they do this thing. So I came into the temple room and all the, the priest was up there and he was doing his thing. And this is, this is just how it's done for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can't change that. Religion. Brilliant. I love it. And then someone picks up a set of cartels. No one asked them. Just an individual in the crowd. Someone picks up a murdanga. And they start playing. Completely different form of religion. In the same room this Pancharatra system and this Kirtan system. And this is totally spontaneous, the Kirtan. Everyone just starts chanting and it gets going and sometimes it's brilliant and it's ecstatic and sometimes it's just nice. And it's just, it's different every time. Totally spontaneous. It's just your heart in relation to God. Whereas this other is about rules and regulations. And some person thinks this and some person thinks that and I'm with, I'm with both of them. I think it's great. Do whatever gets you up in the morning. But whatever you do, you have to be having an experience of God. If you're not, give it up. Find something else. You have to be having an experience of God. That's the process. And, you know, kirtan, that does it for me. That's my religion. I love all the rest of it. To come in front of the deities, the devotees who do the puja, I'm so grateful to them because deity worship 
especially in ISKCON temples, is of such a high standard. And you just, you have darshan. And darshan in the context of deity worship means to see God and to be seen by God. Two things are going on. It's a relationship, so dynamic. So when people come to me and reject religion based on, you know, some little experience they had that was negative, sorry, that's not, it's not substantial enough. They're not thinking. It's not enough. When people reject God without even thinking of who is God or what is God, that's not enough. I've, I've found very few atheists in the world. You have to have a lot of faith to be an atheist. So I, I can't do it. I couldn't get it together. Didn't have enough faith. You know, to be an atheist, you have to, you know, if, if you're a scientist, uh, empiricist, rationalist, and then you say, because of those reasons, you can't prove God, so I don't believe in God. You know, there is no God. Well, that's ridiculous, because scientifically, you can't prove there isn't a God. So you can't reject God. If you can't prove there isn't a God, then scientifically, you can't reject it. You have to leave the concept on the table. So anyone who's an actual scientist, empiricist, rationalist, cannot intellectually, with any integrity, reject the idea of God. You cannot say there is no God. If you do, you've started a religion. It's your faith that there's no God. You have no proof. And that just makes sense to me. So when someone comes to me with all this stuff, it's emotional. They just had a bad experience. I get it. So they reject religion, they reject God. It's an emotional thing. So that's what we have to do to help them. We have to be kind. And that doesn't cost us anything. He's also talking about as a bigger, not individually, but like groups, you know, uh, you mentioned ISIS or things like that. You know. ISIS? Well, just the idea of religion. What, what has ISIS got to do with religion? <laughs> <laughs> ISIS is just that they're, they're very unfortunate people who really haven't thought it through. You know, I mean, just the idea of you, you martyr yourself and then you go up and you get 70 virgins. You know, what happens after 70 nights? You're left with no virgins. And you're there for eternity. <laughs> they, re they really haven't thought this through. You know, it's a, ISIS, a, a f the issue really for ISIS is fanaticism. And fanaticism is religion without philosophy. Indian philosophies, like Vaishnavism, has the basis of Vedanta, the idea of Samadarshana. That's philosophy. That's a philosophical assumption, that's how the world works. And every Indian religious tradition, no matter what it is, has a philosophical basis. It's very difficult to become fanatical. And everyone tries it, Hindu nationalism, and after a while it just fizzles out. Because it's unsustainable, philosophically. Fanaticism is just where you get sentimental and emotional and hyped up. Because you don't have enough to think about in terms of the subject. And we have to guard against it in every religious tradition. It's very damaging. And, and consequently, just philosophy without religion is also damaging. It's really dry. We just say everything is rational. But, you know, uh, marriage isn't rational. No one gets married by, by rational means. <laughs> you know, you're in a dance hall and you see someone across the way and you look at them and you say, now let me see, what kind, of, uh, what, kind of, what kind of genes would they have? And, you know, um, uh, if I marry them, I'll have a joint bank account. There's a good idea. And yeah, It's not rational at all. It's totally, you know, bong. <laughs> you know, Hollywood music comes in the background. And... The, the biggest decisions we make in life have nothing to do with rational thought. They're about the heart. You know, who we marry, who we take initiation from as a guru, who, you know, who we have our relationships with, what books we read, what films we watch. It's, it's all to do with the heart. And then we rationalize it later. You see the person across the dance hall and you go, oh, and then you think, how do I get them? Then you're into the bathroom, put on your makeup, you know, brushing your teeth, doing all the things, all the tactics, the rational thought of how to do it. That comes later. But, yeah. Enough of atheism. <laughs> um, Shankar, I was wondering about, um, you were talking about Samadarshana, um, the issues within all religion, and I would definitely say, also comes up within our own um, movement, shall I say, is sex issues, gender, and racism. And we may want to live our life um, with that level of Samadarshana. 
But when we're confronted with that, um, I was wondering if you could say something about how to respond um, when we're confronted with those issues, not just in the world, but even in our own um, circle of work and religion and culture as well as others. Because if we're meant to be setting the example... Um, yeah, we have to practice it. Yeah. Well, a very good question. And, and it's not easy um, to follow principles uh, at all. Um, our principles are always challenged and our principles can lead us to getting fired from our job or getting turfed out of our local uh, temple community because, you know, we have our principles. Um, uh, and these become the flashpoints. But it's interesting, you, I mentioned names earlier like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Aung San Suu Kyi and, and Nelson Mandela and all that. But what defined those people? It wasn't that they led blameless lives. In actual fact, Nelson Mandela was a terrorist and he was convicted of terrorism and put in jail for terrorism. He wanted to use uh, bombs and guns to bring down apartheid. That is actual terrorism by anyone's standard. But he changed. And when he came out of prison, he, he, he was philosophically changed. So he went into a stadium to make a speech and everyone expected him, more or less, to declare war on whites because the blacks were now in the ascendancy. Because he was out, he was their leader. And he was going to change apartheid. And for a lot of people, they interpreted that very, in a very narrow way. And it was a racist way. And he knew it was wrong. And he came out and he said something completely different. And he broadened it out. He took it out of that context. And that was a very brave thing to do, because he could have been killed. And we have to remember Martin Luther King was killed. And Gandhi was killed. Aung San Suu Kyi was locked up for 20 years in her own home. These are the sacrifices people with principles make. That's possibly why we don't follow them. <laughs> but this is what it takes. So when you're in your own home and you find in your own family that there's racism, in your own family that there's gender disparity, in your own family that there's sexual abuse, that's difficult. Well, I can't write a script for you and say this is the way to do it. Because every circumstance is unique, and that's the idea of a principle. In, in Vaishnavism, we don't give you a rule book and say, in this circumstance do this, in this circumstance do this. It doesn't work like that. In this circumstance, here are the principles to guide you. And then you use that principle. So you're looking in the circumstance, you're thinking, how do I cause the least harm here? And then you take it from there. Or if harm is being done, you see, this is against my principle. How do I react here? But when it's in your own family, physical birth family, or your own family of this community, or your own family of America, however we define that, we have to think how to act, and it'll be very individual. And I had to deal with a case of a girl who had been abused by a member of her own family, and um, she brought it up to the family and got thrown out of the family. This is an Indian girl. And uh, she was devastated. She came and asked my advice. And she had been advised to go to the police, go to social services and all that. And we, we talked about it. And I asked her, what do you want out of this? Do you want justice? Do you want revenge? Do you want a relationship with your family again? And she had to decide what to do. And these are difficult uh, circumstances. If she, bring, if she goes for revenge, she's not going to have a relationship with her family ever again. It's going to break the family up. So, you know, these are the issues. And everyone has to make their own decision. And some people, they're not, they don't want revenge so much, they actually want their mother. You know, and that's actually the biggest issue. So, I can't answer the question because every circumstance is different. But I can definitely say that these six Gita values will help you deal with any circumstance. And they have done for thousands of years. And they help me in my chaplaincy where I, I have to deal with these issues. And I, I don't start the conversation with someone thinking I can deal with it because ultimately I can just give them principles to reflect on so they make a decision, because it's not my decision to make. So, I think every circumstance is different, and some circumstances 
will demand of us to do things that could be very difficult for our family or our community. And we have to consult about that and pray to Krishna about that. And we have to learn how to practice our principles. And I guarantee all of you, you will try and practice these principles and you will fail often. You only have to get it right a few times. Just, you just have to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Riding a bicycle, you'll fall off, you'll fall off, you'll fall off, but eventually. And eventually it'll be like riding a bicycle. It'll just be like second nature. But we have to start somewhere. So we don't have to worry about the difficult issues. They'll come of their own accord. But we just have to know that these are my principles. Now let me practice them. And the challenges will come. That's okay, let them come. And let's see what kind of a person I am. And we're going to fail. We're going to fail to ourselves. We're going to become people we don't want to be. But it's all part of becoming the person we want to be, person we can be. So failure is the pillar of success. Don't, don't worry about it. Just try it. Keep trying. Keep trying. And Krishna will be very pleased. Krishna is very pleased with anyone who takes the Gita seriously. He says that at the end that anyone who reads this Gita is worshipping me with intelligence. Anyone who tries to follow it is worshipping Krishna with their heart. That's what he's looking for. And we can all do that. So I don't, should I be looking for more questions? Where is Nanda gone? What the boss? Krishna, great class. Um, so I wanted to dive in a little bit more into your segment around environmental policy. Um, so, you know, right now our world's population is 7.5 billion. And as a result of our species, our civilization, we've probably wiped out 40% of animal life. Um, I don't think there's debate on that. And, um, you know, we're projected to go to 11.2 billion uh, by 2100. So when I look at, you know, when I think about our views um, from the various major doctrines around the world, around, um, you know, pro-life and, and, and things like that, um, you know, I wonder if our just, you know, our, our very own existence seems to wipe out our ecosystem. I mean, we're, which seems like from, a, from an environmental perspective, we're no different from, you know, cancer on the earth, you know? And so I guess, how do we balance that? You know, when we think about Gita views or other doctrine views where they're very pro-life, where there's not really a view on population control, um, you know, what, what is the animal life gonna look like by 2100? I mean, it, we're probably gonna wipe everything out, you know? So what are the modern views? Do we need to modernize um, so that we can sort of support the, the ecosystem around us. And I, and I certainly acknowledge, especially with, with, with our doctrine, that you know, there's sort of a um, lack of interest in consumerism, which is, which is totally fine. But just our very own lifestyle, turning on the air condition, transporting here, right? That causes all this sort of e you know, ecological devastation. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about what's, what's the balance? Once very quickly? Yeah. yeah, two minutes. I only have two minutes, so it, it was a quick question. It actually wasn't a quick question, but we'll give it. <laughs> um, did a misselling there. But um, I'll try. In two minutes, um, human beings have the facility to follow principles, and animals don't. Don't be an animal. You find principles and follow them. We're not prophets, and we have no idea what's actually going to happen a hundred years from now. Because there could be a cataclysm organized by nature, and nature is very well organized. And nature may just wipe out half of us, just because it can. You know what I mean? It, we, all this stuff is that we don't know what's going on. All we have control of is our ability to do the right thing. And it's our choice whether we come here by camel, or bicycle, or gas-guzzling car. And it's our choice if we get used to the fan or the AC. These are choices that we can make. And it's up to us to make them based on our principles. So we have to find principles that mean something to us and that can enable us to make a positive contribution to the world and a positive contribution to the mission of God on this planet. And that is love. And animals can't do this. We can do it. 
That's the distinguishing feature. Don't be an animal. When we act like animals, then we, it's just eat or be eaten, survival of the fittest, or into that biological Darwinism. We can, we can transcend that. We have the choice. And if we make that choice and establish principles within ourselves and just practice them and gradually do the right thing, then society will change. Because society is only made up of people. And when people seeing, see other people do the right thing, they're compelled towards goodness. We're all compelled towards goodness. And if goodness isn't there, we lapse into, into uh, the wrong thing so easily. So going down the river with our hands behind our head, that's real easy. Fighting against the stream, that's like insane. But that's the way to go, because you're heading towards a waterfall. And when you see people going up the river and everyone else is on their raft, and it's a beautiful raft, and they're looking at you saying, why are you struggling? There is no struggle. And you're saying, there's a waterfall, God's sake, man. You know, we have to make the right decisions. We have to see clearly. And we can't even see clearly unless we act like human beings. We see like animals, eating, sleeping, mating, defending. That's all we do. Animals can do that. So if you want that, be an animal. But we are in human bodies. Act like humans and things will change. Nature will respond to our response. Nature is always responding. It's in a dialogue with us. It's just that our end of the dialogue is... <laughs> it's really not coherent. It's just, gimme, 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 gimme. You know, let me dig into the, get all the soil, get all the gold, get all the diamonds, gimme, gimme. You know, give me all the land, get those animals out of the way. It's just so difficult to talk to someone like that. And that's us. Imagine trying to have a conversation with someone like that, whose only conversation is, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. When you meet a child like that, who's just, give me, you just want to get away. Where are your parents? No. So we have to change. We have to become humans, act like humans. And that starts with principle. We have to establish principles, and this is my goal. I'm going to become that person, and then do it. And don't mess around. And unless we become the example of that, we can't effectively teach people how to do it. So every one of us, if we took one Gita principle and took it seriously in our lives, that would be a transformation of society. This is possible. It's possible to do this. And we have to work with other religions who are also principled so that we can work together on this. Because in their scriptures, there's wonderful things about nature. We, we can all work together. We can make a huge difference to this planet if we work together. And in this temple, the strategic vision is serving Krishna together. Three words, simple words. They're all about relationship. Serving Krishna together. And anyone, a five-year-old child can do that. A 70-year-old man can do that. Even a woman can do that. <laughs> Shana Karishi, uh, please. Uh, thank you.